0: quote from a great theologian, Jerome Seinfeld, and here's what Jerry said, a lawyer is basically the person that knows the rules of the country. We're all throwing dice, playing the game, moving our pieces around the board, but if there's a problem, the lawyer's the only person that's read the instructions on the inside of the box. I love that, and I'll tell you why. In law school, and this was really weird and I didn't understand it at the time, I was very young and, you know, very impressionable, and our law school professors kept telling us over and over and over again that we weren't there to learn every law, which is exactly what most people think law school is, and certainly what I was thinking law school was about was learning all the laws. But they kept telling us, no, you're you're here to learn to think like a lawyer. Which every time we said that, we kind of rolled our eyes and went, oh my gosh, you know, give me a break. But we were there to learn how things work. Or to use Jerry's words, we're there to learn the rules of the country. And even though we rolled our eyes when we first heard it, it turned out to be the truest and most useful thing that they taught us. And here's why. Throughout my legal career, one of the most common questions I received as a lawyer is some version of, is it illegal if I? Is it illegal if I? Is it illegal if I don't claim my frequent flyer miles as income? Is it illegal if I write off my pleasure fishing boat as a business expense? Is it illegal if I drive my car with an expired tag? Now, of course, all of these things can be illegal. But what people really meant by the question was, what can I do that I want to do, even though I shouldn't be doing, and still get away with it? That's what everybody wants to know. In other words, can you tell me where the loopholes are in life? And when I went into the ministry, I figured at least I don't have to answer those questions anymore. But wrong I was. And when I thought about it, though, it made a lot of sense, actually. One of the things that a rules-based, judgment-centered religion, or any rules-based, judgment-centered relationship, for that matter, causes people to do is look for the loopholes. We actually begin developing this skill of being able to find the loopholes in life when we're children. What's a loophole? A loopholes loophole is basically just a way around the rules that technically don't break the rules. Nobody had to teach us how to look for or exploit loopholes. We figured these things out in our lives very early. You parents recognize this? Didn't I tell you not to hit your brother? And the kid says, I didn't hit him. I twisted his arm and pushed him to the ground. Hmm. Didn't I tell you no more screaming? It says I wasn't screaming, I was just talking loudly. I mean, that's what we did. I did it. Most kids do it. We all know what a loophole is. Nobody had to teach us how to find them. But when religious people exploit a loophole in their own religion, we have a term for that. What do we call religious people who are always trying to exploit a loophole in their own religion? We call them hypocrites. And when religious leaders exploited the religious rules for their own benefit, Jesus called them hypocrites, and then he called them something even more descriptive. So let's go to Matthew's gospel for a second, chapter 23, verse 27. He said, "'Woe to you.'" By the way, whenever Jesus said to woe to you to somebody, it was a bad thing. Okay? You don't want the God of the universe telling you, "'Woe to you.'" That's bad. That's like going to the principal's office times 10. "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites.'" You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Yuck, right? Now, Jesus went on to say that essentially any religious leader who cares more about enforcing man-made rules than they care about the people whom God loves and made in his image, those people are fools, So if you don't care for religious hypocrites, as we're going to see today, there's good news. You and Jesus are on the exact same page. We're on part four of our series, You're Not Far. It's the story of Jesus as told by Simon Peter, the Apostle Peter, to John Mark, Mark the gospel writer, And it comes to us through Mark's gospel. This is Peter's story written in Mark's gospel. And as we've seen at the beginning of this gospel, here was the main idea. And here's what Mark wrote. This is what Jesus said as reported by Peter. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is saying in connection with everything that the Old Testament, that the Hebrew Bible has pointed to, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near because the king's son is in town, and the way to respond to him is to repent and believe this good news. Now, we've talked about it over the last few messages. When we hear the word repent, especially in a religious context, we're sort of preconditioned to think of it as a command connected to negative behavior. Turn away from your negative behavior, repent from your sin, turn from your sin, but here, in Peter's using it actually in a positive way. Peter's using it to say God has done something incredible that you don't want to miss out on. So you have to turn toward it and face it and embrace it. That's what repentance means. It means to turn toward or turn from or both. When you turn from something, you turn toward something. It means to turn toward it so you can devote your entire life to it. And in this series, we've, been, we've seen something interesting about Jesus that will kind of launch us into what we'll learn today. Today. We discovered that Jesus got angry, not when disobedient, not when people were disobedient. That's not what made Jesus angry. Jesus got angry when religion got in the way of a person's relationship with God and with God's image bearers, other people with us. Jesus got angry when people tried to use his father's words to hurt people whom his father loved. And in the middle of one of these conflicts with the religious leaders, Jesus stopped the show with this truth, which is where we left off last week. Before I read it to you, won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together today. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us to take another look into Mark's gospel and to understand you better. So God, use us today, or use your word today to instruct us and to draw us closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what Jesus said, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. Now this caused the brains of Jesus' first century audience to explode. What? the, the, the sabbath the most sacred day of the week what it is not for god it's for people but jesus by saying that was implying that god loved people more than he loved his own commandments did god create his commandments not for the sake of controlling mankind but as a gift to us because he loves us well that's what jesus was saying and to illustrate his statement, Jesus broke one of the traditions of the elders and he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Now, to the religious leader, Jesus' action violated a first century application of one of the Ten Commandments about keeping the Sabbath holy. So as a result of their understanding that Jesus violated this rule, which meant he violated the commandment, the leaders got very angry, and things began to get very heated. And then something happened, which is where we left off last week. We saw how Jesus had healed so many people that it overwhelmed him, and it overwhelmed his disciples to the point where Mark 3.20 Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. Like they were so busy. You ever been so busy? You miss lunch or you you miss your meal, you miss dinner or something like that. That's what was happening. Jesus was so busy. The disciples were so busy healing people and tending to people and doing the work of the ministry that they didn't even eat. And it was in the middle of this scene that Jesus' mother, Mary, and Jesus' brothers arrived. And about Jesus, do you remember what Mary said? She said, he is out of his mind. That's what Mary said about Jesus. Now, the religious leaders did not hold the same view. The religious leaders didn't think Jesus was out of his mind. They thought something much worse about Jesus. They thought this. They thought that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. They were not thrilled with Jesus. But notwithstanding their feelings, because Jesus was healing so many people, the crowds continued to grow. His fame continued to spread. And at one point, Peter tells us, that the crowds got so large that Jesus and his disciples had to sneak away. They just had to get away from the crowds. So they got in a boat, and they pushed off into the Sea of Galilee. So they're making their escape from the crowd on a boat. But in Mark 6:54, as soon as they got out of the boat... The people recognized Jesus. They couldn't go anywhere. And Peter added, and they ran through the whole region and carried the sick on mats wherever they heard Jesus was. Can you imagine that scene? The people are running around. They have all these infirmed and sick people on mats and they're throwing them over their shoulders and they're carrying them around. Quick, quick, quick. We've got to catch up with Jesus. He's going to heal them. And wherever Jesus went, into the villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. So you see what's happening here. The people would anticipate where Jesus was headed so that they could bring their sick and their infirm to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would heal them. There was a buzz around Jesus, Jesus had gone viral. His ministry and the excitement that surrounded his ministry was making news throughout the region. And this wasn't so easy to make news back then. It's not like it was tweeted out. It's not like everybody could see everything. I mean, this had to pass by word of mouth. And it passed by word of mouth like wildfire. And this was making the religious people very nervous. Because they were starting to see Jesus as a growing threat to them. To their power and their control over the people. Well, here's what happens next in Mark 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Now, a few words on this. We tend to read through this really quickly because it doesn't seem like there's much going on, but there really is a bit to see. Remember, at the beginning of our study of this gospel of Mark, we saw that the gospel takes place in the northern part of the Holy Land what we call Israel now. So if you're looking at the map, at the top it says Galilee. That's where all this took place. The region of Galilee near the Sea of Galilee. Well, the temple was located about a five-day walk away down there in the south in Jerusalem. So if the Pharisees who were in Jerusalem... And some of the teachers of the law, if they were going to make that journey all the way up to the Galilee region to see what Jesus was up to, they must have been extremely concerned. They were. They'd heard about this new rabbi who burst onto the scene, who was healing people and teaching people all these new things, and they feared that there was trouble a brewing. That's what they say in southern Israel. So they sent a delegation to check things out. And when they arrived, Mark 7-2, they saw some of Jesus' disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, hands that were unwashed. As he was taking all of this down, remember Peter's dictating his story to Mark. Mark knew that there were going to be some Gentiles, some some non-Jewish people who were going to read this gospel. So he explained what this meant. It's really interesting that this is in the scripture. He said, the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. I think I told you, in, in Orthodox Judaism, in, in, Jude, in Jews that, that practice Orthodox Judaism, there is a prayer for almost everything. There's, you wash your hands and pray when you get up in the morning. You wash your hair, hands and, and, and pray before you eat, after you eat. There's all sorts of times you're always washing and praying and washing and praying. Anyway, I want to give you a little bit more background. The Jews understood that God handed Moses the Ten Commandments. And then that God gave Moses the other laws as well that would be written down and would become part of the Hebrew Bible. They refer to it as the Tanakh. We call it the Old Testament. The first part of the Old Testament is called the Torah, or Torah, which means in Hebrew, the law. That's all that means. It means the law. So the first, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the law. Then the Jews also believe that God gave Moses hundreds of additional laws that were not written down, but they were orally passed down from generation to generation. Now they referred to these laws as the oral law. Makes sense, right? They're orally passed down, they're laws that were supposedly given to Moses, so the oral Torah. And the intent of these oral laws, there were 613 total oral laws, is they were to serve as a hedge of protection or a fence written around the written law. So in other words, you never get close to breaking the written law because you bump into the fence or you bump into the hedge. They served served as a barrier to protect the written law from being broken. Well, as you might guess, because the oral law was not a written law, there was room for disagreement, right? If you write something down and you disagree, you could look at the writing. That's why written contracts work better than oral contracts. Oral contracts, you can argue about, you said this, no, you said that. Written contracts, you pull out the piece of paper and go, look at it, here it is, right here. It's the same kind of thing. So there was room for disagreement, and religious people never miss an opportunity to disagree. And by Jesus' day, even the Pharisees struggled to agree upon which oral laws were valid and which ones weren't. Well, Jesus knew their hearts. And Jesus wasn't interested in being part of the religious games that they were creating, that they were playing. So with all of this in mind, Mark 7, 5. When the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus responded, and he responded by quoting the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 750 years before Jesus and prophesied all things, all sorts of things about the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus, quoting Isaiah from the Old Testament, said this in our next verse, verse 6. He said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. you imagine that he wrote that 750 years before Jesus came along and Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen? Now, Isaiah's writing was held in very high esteem by the Jewish people. It was a part of the Hebrew Bible. And as a part of the Hebrew Bible, it held that God knew, God knew that one day, Religious people raised raise their own traditions above the very words of God. So Jesus called these important religious leaders who just made this long journey all the way up from Jerusalem, all the way up from Jewish headquarters. He called them to their face, hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. That was profoundly insulting. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips. Jesus was saying that even though the religious people learned to say all the right religious things, had learned to say all the right spiritual things, oh, bless your heart, God bless you, all that stuff, he knew in their hearts they're just putting on a show. And in reality, they were far from God. Jesus was saying the kingdom of God has come near, but their hearts are far from me, so far in fact that they won't even be able to recognize when their own king shows up on the scene. Though they were worshiping God, so they said, Jesus said their worship was in vain. And the rules that they were teaching were just human rules. They're not rules that came from God. So suffice it to say, Jesus was not on board with their oral Torah. He knew that what they were really doing was turning religion into a formula, into a game that only they could win. And quite frankly, that's what religious leaders did, and that's what many religious leaders still do today. They still insist on doing it, and quite frankly, it is gross. Well, Jesus wasn't going to let that go, so chastising them, here's what Jesus said. You have let go the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You have moved past what God actually said, and you've chosen instead to stick to human traditions that you made up. And Jesus continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now, when we read that, we understand it means you religious people have just created religious loopholes that serve to benefit you and only you. Now, to the religious people, these are fighting words. But Jesus was just getting started. So next, Jesus humiliated them by pointing out an example of their hypocrisy, by showing them how they insisted on obedience to a man-made tradition, to a loophole that allowed them to bypass Moses' actual law. We can read about it in Mark 7.10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Kids, death penalty For disrespecting your parents. Death penalty. Jesus is referring to the fifth commandment. And he's referring to the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament punishment for violating it. If you want to look it up. Exodus 21.17. And I want you to see this. By saying this. Jesus was saying that ignoring your responsibility to your parents. Was not some minor infraction. Which sounds totally odd for us in 2023. When there's so much push to. Tell kids you don't have to listen to your parents. But under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament law, doing that could get you killed. It led to the death penalty. And you might not know this, and this is interesting. Jesus never disconnected the Old Testament law from the Old Testament punishments or violating that law. We modern Christians do that. We never try to have the Old Testament punishments imposed. And there's a reason for that. But Jesus is saying, listen, it doesn't work that way. And here's what he was implying, and, and he'll say it a little bit more clear in Mark's gospel, but he basically said, okay, you want to follow the Torah? Fine, enforce the Torah. But if you're going to do the enforcement of the Torah law, you have to enforce the Torah punishment as well. In other words, that's what was written, and that's what's been handed down. Jesus, though, continues in verse 11. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin. Corbin is a Hebrew word that means devoted to God. So if your money is devoted to God, this is what the law says, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. That is a bit confusing. I'm going to tell you what it means. Because it was written down during the time of the eyewitnesses, And he assumed that they understood. Here's what Jesus was saying. That's why he didn't explain it well. He's like, these guys get it. I understand. But here's what Jesus was saying. You're called by the Old Testament law to take care of your parents. But taking care of your parents is expensive and time-consuming. Just like today, right? So the religious leaders came up with a loophole to work around the command to take care of your parents. According to the religious leaders, the way to honor your parents follow this, is to dedicate all of your wealth and all of your income to God, which to them meant the way to take care of your parents was to give all your wealth and all of your income to the temple in Jerusalem. So here's how it worked. When a person was alive, they could use their money, but they could only use their money with the understanding that to honor their parents, they had to have already agreed that that money isn't theirs, it belongs to the temple. So there became a Pharisaic custom, and the custom prohibited people from using their money, because it was all devoted to God, to serve or help out anyone else. That's not their money to use. It's not their money to hand out. It's God's money. It was earmarked exclusively for the temple in Jerusalem. That was a loophole that allowed people to get around God's command to honor their father and mother. In other words, I don't have to help my parents out because I've already devoted it to the temple, and that's good enough, and there you go. Well, Jesus didn't like hypocritical loopholes. The religious leaders were again taking their traditions and elevating them over the clear teaching of the law and the prophets. And for us, and I'll have to unpack this another time, we're still called to honor our father and mother, but it's not necessarily because Moses said it. It's because Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament laws. That's why we don't have Old Testament punishments anymore. Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament laws... And he gave us a new command, a new overarching command to love God and others, to love our neighbors too. But loving and honoring our parents falls under that command. Our parents are people that aren't us. They're other people. Jesus says, love them. The way you love them is to honor them. That's what Jesus' command was. So the religious leaders were guilty of using the words that they said came from God to hurt the people that God loved. Now, I pick on the religious leaders a lot. Because Jesus picked on the religious leaders a lot. But before we judge them too harshly, have you ever sinned against another person? Have you ever harmed another person? Either unintentionally or intentionally. And then because of some tradition or something that you were taught by a religious leader, you tried to make things right with God but you didn't go to the people you heard. You you prayed, or maybe you gave a gift, or maybe you came to church a little bit more frequently, but you never went back to that person and made it right with that person. If you've ever heard a person and then tried to make things right with God using some other method, but you never went back and made it right with that person, here's what Jesus would say to you. In doing that, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have created. You've adopted a tradition that conflicts with Jesus' clear teaching. Because Jesus taught over and over again, and John taught over and over again, if you aren't right with your brother or your sister, if you sinned against somebody that you can see, in other words, not God who you can't see, but somebody you can see, don't pretend that things are right with the one you can't see. You can't be right with God if you're not right with the people whom God loves. So if you're a parent, it's easy. Think of it like this. If someone has hurt your child, they should not expect you to be their friend until they make things right with your child. Our Heavenly Father is the exact same. And if you were raised in any kind of religious context you probably go through some sort of mental gymnastics that you think make you right with God. And by the way, I'm not throwing rocks here. I think make me right with God because of what we've been taught. And Jesus would say, that's not good. That's not right. That's what the teachers of the law did. You're leveraging a man-made tradition and giving it priority over the clear teachings of Jesus, which is that your love for the people around you and the way you treat the people around you is a reflection of your love for God. For the God you cannot see. It's so important to remember. God gave us this life. He's ordered us to love him and to love those around us. And we need to do that. Jesus, conti- Jesus continued in Mark seven thirteen. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. It is safe to say we've all done this. There are so many examples of how we've taken man-made traditions, particularly man-made traditions of the church, and we've elevated these traditions over the word of God, thinking that all of that would make us good with God. And Jesus would tell us in no uncertain terms, it won't. When Peter, Andrew, James, and John heard that, They didn't understand it. It made no sense to them, but they would understand it one day. Well, from there, Jesus went on. He would debunk some more false beliefs. He would cast out demons. He would heal people. He would feed a large crowd. And before long, Peter would publicly recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Who do the people say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said. And as they were walking along, Mark 7, 31, 32... Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It took a lot to really get Peter to understand what was going on. He he really had had lots of strong opinions. Peter was probably thinking, hey, Jesus, you know, You wouldn't have to suffer so much, and you wouldn't be rejected by the religious leaders all the time if you'd quit antagonizing them, you know? You're kind of bringing a lot of this on yourself, buddy. But Jesus wasn't going to stop, and here's why. Because the entire law and the entire temple system, the things that went on in the temple in Jerusalem every single day were all designed to point to him, All of those things were designed to to prepare the people for the coming kingdom, which was going to be unlike any kingdom they ever expected. But it would be a kingdom they would have to embrace. The whole temple system was designed to prepare people for the coming Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. But as they had corrupted the temple system, those who thought that they were serving God, that kingdom wouldn't even recognize God's kingdom and wouldn't even recognize the king that introduced God's kingdom. These temple rituals were supposed to prepare the people, but instead of preparing the people, they confused the people. And yet in spite of all that, Jesus would preach, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe The good news, the kingdom of God has come near and this is your opportunity to repent and believe, to turn and embrace what God is doing. And we're going to pick up there next week. But before we go, I want to ask you a question using Jesus' words. Is it possible that you have let go of the actual commands of God and are holding on to human traditions? Is it possible that you have come up with your own loopholes? Is it possible that you have come up with your own way to set aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions? In other words, is it possible that you are, is it possible that we all are guilty of creating our own loopholes? You do something that you just know violates God's law and you say, well, if I do this, God will be okay with me. But the this is something you just made up. Or you've seen maybe other people in church do. But here are a few questions to help you figure out if you're doing that. And to help you be honest with yourself. And and by the way, again, I want to say I'm not throwing rocks up here. I'm guilty of all of this too. So we are all in this together. As one of my teachers likes to say, we're all just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. All right? Here's the first question. Do you ever try to figure out how close you can get to sin without actually sinning? Hmm? It's a silly game that we play. And it really minimizes God. It makes God, our Heavenly Father, so inconsequential. It makes Jesus' death on the cross to pay for our sins so meaningless. But we do it anyway, don't we? We always ask ourselves, how close can I get to sin without having to apologize to God. And as soon as we start thinking this way, and as soon as we start trying to figure out ways to excuse our behavior, we're guilty of the exact same thing the Pharisees were guilty of. Give that some thought. Do you ever try to figure out how close you can get to sin without actually sinning? All right, question two. Do you believe that there's some kind of ritual that makes you right with God, that absolves you of your responsibility to make things right with other people? You know, I got in a fight with my brother, got in a fight with my best friend, I had a hard time with somebody I work with, but you know, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning, I'm going to do some Bible study, I'm going to pray, I should be good. We ever do things like that? Jesus would say, you're doing it again. When you do that, you've just created a 21st century loophole that lets you off the hook. Something that allows you to to ignore the things that Jesus clearly taught. And do you know how this makes us look to people that aren't part of the fellowship? People are outsiders to the body of Christ? This is why so often Christians are considered by so many to be hypocrites. If they understood the illusion, they'd call us whitewashed tombs. Do you believe that there's some kind of ritual that makes you right with God that absolves you of your responsibility to make things right with other people? Lastly, are you leaning on the myth that God suffers from short-term memory loss? Are you traveling under the false understanding that if you just confess your sin to God, God just completely forgets what you did? People have taken this idea; it's found in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. They've taken it out of context. But they've taken the idea that God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west and turned it into something that it isn't. Because it is true that the whole idea of being forgiven by God is a real thing. When when we go to Jesus, when we confess our sins to him, when we understand that we can't live perfectly, when we understand what he did for us on the cross, and we turn from the way we were, we turn toward Jesus, and we say, Jesus, I want to give you my life, I want to follow you with my life. Those sins no longer result in punishment for us, yes, but they don't erase God's memory. And they don't eliminate the need that we have to go back to the people we've harmed and make it right. But if you think about it, it makes sense. If confessing sins actually erases God's memory, well, that means there are things in the Bible that God no longer remembers, God no longer knows about, right? What was that story about David? Uh, Uh, He was with bath something, a bathtub, I don't remember. Uh, It doesn't make any sense. God, of course, remembers all of that. Though Jesus died so that God will no longer hold our sin against us, Jesus' invitation to follow him is so much more than just that. Jesus' invitation to us is not only an invitation to eternal life on this side of heaven and beyond, but it's an invitation to live here on this earth with and for God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And that God, our God, is so much bigger and so much better than all these silly, small ways that we try to manipulate Him and control Him to do our bidding. Those things do nothing for us. Those things do nothing for our faith. Those things do nothing for the way that the world sees us. The decision to follow Jesus is the decision to disconnect ourselves from all those silly games and from all of our man made traditions. Because we have been invited to participate in a new kingdom, a kingdom that is far, far superior to any of the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom of conscience that is informed by the law of Christ, which is simply that we're to love God and others the way that God, through Jesus, God the Son, loved each of us. That one commandment is this all-encompassing, motivating force that dictates how we do everything Else in our lives. How we love in all of our relationships, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we behave in our marriages, how we raise our children, and how we treat other people is all encompassed by that command. How we reflect in our lives the way that God through Christ has loved us, that's the call, that's the command. And here's what's so extraordinary about that there are no loopholes and that kind of love. There are no workarounds, and there's no way to cheat. All it requires of us is that we wake up every single day and ask ourselves the question, what does love require of me? If you're ever wondering what to do, ask yourself, what does love require of you? In every relationship, Every time we interact with people in the community, every time we interact with people in our family, those are our marching orders. What does love require of me? It is a love without loopholes. And when we fall short, let's not make excuses. Let's not make apologies. Let's just make things right with those people. So if you've been guilty of playing those games, if you've been guilty of hiding behind some silly tradition, hiding behind some silly mind game that you manufactured or you inherited from somebody who raised you or from the religious system you grew up in, are you willing to be done with that? And would you be willing to be honest with God? And would you be willing to throw up your hands and surrender and follow him? Because after all, the time has come. This new way of living, this new way of thinking, the kingdom of God has come near, which means you are not far. And the question for me and the question for you every day is this. Will we repent? And will we turn toward this invitation to follow? And will we put our faith in the fact that God has sent someone on our behalf that has reduced the complexity of religion to this one overarching, powerful command that we are to love as we have been loved. We're never far from God because His love for us is never far from us. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this word. We thank You for this time of gathering as as Your body, as Your ecclesia, as Your community. We thank You for the fact that you love us even though you know everything about us. You not only know the things we've done, but you know the things we've thought, which is a chilling, chilling reminder of just how far we have to go. But notwithstanding all that, you love us anyway. And you've sent Jesus, God, the Son, to pay the price for that sin so we can be with you forever. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for this community, this church. We praise you for all that you do. And God, we're excited to spend this coming week with you, loving as you've called us to love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.